be reading in Romans this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, you find Romans chapter 1 in your copy of Scripture. We're going to be in the first seven verses of the book of Romans. We have uh, sort of penciled in how long we're going to be in the book of Romans. We've got a few breaks between now and the end. Romans has 16 chapters, if you uh, are curious. And uh, so we're actually going to be in the book of Romans for the next 18 months. Uh, probably take a, we have a few breaks, uh, Christmas break, a little bit in the summer. But yeah, we'll be in the book of Romans uh, till the end of 2021. So get comfy. Have plenty of time to read through the book, book of Romans a time or two in that time period. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. The theme of the book of, the, of Romans is the gospel. Gospel, it, real, not real complicated, good news. That's all it is, good news. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. And we're going to be looking in the book of the Romans uh, at the gospel, good news, from a number of different angles. And, but in particular, we need to recognize that it's a, telling us a message. The message is good news. There's lots of different kinds of news you can get. You can get good news, you can get bad news, you can get average news, whatever it is. But this is good news. And so it's a, it's a message. It's a message about something. Uh, and it's in particular a message specifically about Jesus Christ. So the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. Good news, Jesus. And that's what we're going to look, be looking at over the course of time uh, a number of different ways. And this is what I want us to think about this morning because we want Romans in the way it draws our minds to think about Jesus to be our guide. There's lots of ways we could think about uh, Jesus in the scripture, but Romans is relatively specific in the manner in which Jesus is presented in this morning we're going to recognize Jesus stepped in to save humanity. Jesus stepped in in power. So the good news is Jesus stepped in. And so the, the gospel, the good news, reveals something to us about our Savior. It reveals something to us about what he is uh, like. So uh, just a quick way of kind of getting our minds thinking about this. I know this isn't terribly theological or high-minded, but here it is. When I was a kid, we watched professional wrestling. Um, when, when I was a kid, we called it Portland wrestling. I don't know why it was called that, uh, but it's not referred to that nowadays, but it's professional wrestling, and it's certainly not wrestling uh, at all. It's two grown men getting into a boxing ring pretending to fight. That's what it is. And then they do this in essentially their underwear. I, I don't understand why we watched it, but essentially two grown men got into a boxing ring, pretend to fight in their underwear. 
and we watch this and we're terribly entertained by it. Um, I know we're in church and you're pretending like, oh, I've never heard of that and I would never watch it. I'm much more high-minded than that, whatever. So there was one particular kind of match. It was called the tag team match. Okay, so it's two guys. Two guys, two guys are in wrestling, wrestling, and, uh, and they're against each other. And each of them have a teammate outside the ring. And what you're allowed to do is if you get tired or you're losing, you can tag your teammate and you can tag your teammate in, right? You get tagged in, right? So usually in these matches, one of the teams is the good team. Yay, we want them to win. And the other team is the bad team. Boo. And so what would happen invariably in these matches is the bad team has the guy, he's down. He's done a pile driver. He's done a, a body slam. He's come off the third rope. Uh, he's done the face into the turnbuckle routine. And then he, now he's got him in a figure four leg lock. I know what you're doing. You're acting like I've never heard these terms because I'm so high-minded. Um, so now he's got him in the figure four leg lock. He's getting ready to quit. He's getting ready to surrender. And he's like, you know, pretend fainting. Ugh. And then he's reaching out to his teammate, right? He's reaching out to tag in his teammate, but they can't quite reach. You can't quite touch each other. Is he going to make it? No, they're going to lose the bad team. And then out of nowhere, somehow, we don't know how, their fingertips just touch. Just grace their fingertips. And the guy who's been resting jumps over the, over the third rope. The other guy, he can't even move. He's just passed out on the mat. And then through acrobatic routines and maneuvers, the good guys win. We love this, don't we? The hero jumps in and the good guys win and we're just so excited because it seemed like everything was going to go terrible and then now the hero wins and then we're left going, I don't know why I'm watching professional wrestling but it seems so compelling. And, it, and the reason it does is because we love this kind of thing. The hero steps in and saves the day. We love it. In fact, we, we are inspired by it and we ought to be. We've, we've seen it over this last weekend Story after story of volunteers and police and firefighters stepping in and helping people who couldn't help themselves otherwise, and we're moved by it, aren't we? That's amazing. There's this fantastic picture. I don't know if you've seen it. It was in Phoenix or Talent, and it was a picture of Phoenix and Talent as they are now, but laying down the middle of that road was a fireman's hose, and it was completely burned. It was just, you could see the fixture at the end and then just what would remain of the hose, but most of it was just ash. What does that tell you? What does that tell you when the firemen didn't even have time to get their equipment stowed? It tells you they were in the mix. They were in the heat of it. And, and when it was time to go and try to, try to establish another line, there wasn't even, they stayed so long they couldn't get their gear. And so it revealed, we're moved by that because we love that the notion that somebody is stepping in to help. And then not only that, when we see a picture like that, we know somebody stepped in to help and we know something in particular about that helper. In that case, helpers who are willing to stand against the heat long past when they should have. They should have left long before then. But they said, no, we're going to stay and just see if we can make the line stand here. But in the end... They had to leave. So we, we love this because it tells us somebody helped and it tells us something about the helper. And this is what the gospel does. It doesn't merely give us good news. It gives us good news about Jesus, that he stepped in in a particular way and we're to be moved by what kind of hero we have in Christ. That the gospel doesn't move us merely because of where we are. The gospel, in fact, moves us because of what our hero is like. So here's the two ideas this morning of what he's like. Jesus stepped in to save humanity, and Jesus stepped in 
with power. Look at the beginning of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Maybe better translated Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul looked at himself in his relationship with Jesus Christ, and he said to himself, I am a slave of Christ. And and the question we have to answer is, why would Paul consider himself a, a slave to Christ? And the why is this? Let's just keep reading just for a little bit. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Humankind rebelled against God, and now we need a salvation plan. And God has set in motion a plan to redeem humankind. And when did that plan start? Sometimes we think God had a lot of different plans, and none of them worked. And so plan cross was plan A, B, C, D, or something, but nothing worked beforehand, so therefore let's try this. That's not what happened. The plan was Jesus from the beginning. It says, it was promised beforehand through the prophets, through the Holy Scriptures. The question we might ask ourselves, why would God want to create a plan to save humans who had rebelled against him? Why would God do that? And there's only one reason to understand God's motives. God is only motivated by two things, what his interests are and what his nature is. God saved humans because he wanted to. And God saves humans because that is what he is like. He wasn't under any obligation to save us. There wasn't anything that required him to make a plan of salvation. God, because of who he is, wanted to save humans because that's what he wanted to do. And that's what he is like. And so he set a plan in motion from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the plan was send my son to save sinners. Let's look at this in detail over in Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 13. You're familiar with this story. It's the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has raised from the dead. I'm going to read Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. It's a, it's a relatively long section of scripture for me to read. And you're just going to have to deal with it. Rome, uh, Luke 24, 13. Here is what it says. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Dude, where you been, bro? Verse 19, and he, that is Jesus, said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said. 
but him they did not see. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus here on this road to Emmaus shows these disciples, beginning with Moses, the book of Genesis and Exodus, the things concerning himself, the Messiah, walking through the Old Testament plan has always been the plan. God was going to send his Messiah to save his people. God was going to send his Messiah to redeem his people from their sin. And that has always been the plan. And Jesus walked through all of the Old Testament and showed these two disciples, this has always been the plan. Jesus is the plan. Jesus is the culmination of the gospel that has been proclaimed since the book of Genesis. He is the final piece of the puzzle of the gospel that is being proclaimed even now. So Jesus is saying, listen, I have stepped into humanity at the fullness of time to culminate everything God has proclaimed. Go back to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. He had just said, he had promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. You see that phrase there? Concerning his son. That phrase is a big deal. So far, we have a Messiah. We have a Messiah who has died on a cross, and we have a Messiah who was the culmination of human history. But now we have concerning his son. And now we are seeing a picture of the Messiah that was mostly missed. In fact, had it not been missed, maybe they wouldn't have crucified him. I don't know. But what does it mean concerning his son? Here's what it means. Jesus is God. He has always been, and he will always be. He was born a man in time, but Jesus, the Son of God, has always been because Jesus is God. John chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus had the audacity to heal a guy on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other C's were very upset. Stop healing on the Sabbath. That's the day off. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, not a big deal, right? You and I read that. I'm like, okay, his father's working, whatever. This is why the Jews, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself, calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Make no mistake, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus makes it quite clear, he claimed to be God himself. Jesus did not claim to be a good teacher. Jesus did not be, claim to be a good magician or a healer or a good rabbi or a guy with some pithy sayings. Jesus said, I am the son of God. And when he said that, he was claiming to be God himself, who has always existed and who always will exist. And if you don't think that's what he was claiming, my question is, why did they keep trying to stone him? They only stoned to death people they thought were being blasphemous. To claim to be God is blasphemy unless you're actually God. Then it's not blasphemy. It's just an accurate self-description. And Jesus 
claim to be God because he is God. And so we, when we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Paul saying, I am a slave of Christ, predicted beforehand concerning his son. Paul is saying, I am a slave to God himself. The Messiah who was promised beforehand is God. And that's what many people in Israel missed. They planned, they knew there was going to be a Messiah. They knew he was going to be a man. They knew he was going to save his people. Many of them didn't connect the dots and realize it was going to be God himself would be the Messiah. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I am a slave to Messiah because Messiah is God. Romans 3. More than that, Jesus stepped in to save humanity by being descended from David according to the flesh. So although he is God and has always been God and always will be God, he was born in the flesh and became a human, a man. He entered into humanity. In order to step in to save humanity, he had to enter into humanity. So Jesus is the Messiah, and the Apostle Paul says, I am his slave because he is God. Romans 1.5. I was deciding to say something else, and you're welcome. I decided not to. Now you're going to be curious all day, right? No, you won't. All right. Look what the Apostle Paul says. It was through Jesus Christ our Lord that we received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name. So the question is, why would Jesus enter into humanity? Obviously, he was, that was what he was interested in. And obviously, that's his nature. But what is hoped to be gained by Jesus entering into humanity to save humanity from their sins? And there's two reasons for it. Number one, to bring about his grace. It says there, uh, Paul's apostleship was intended to bring about obedience of faith. What is obedience of faith? Because to us, maybe faith and obedience seem like they are contradictory. You either obey or try to serve God through works or you try to serve God through faith. What is obedience of faith? They're actually two are intimately connected. So a kid comes home from school um, or used to come home from school. Uh, now I think they're just home. But <laughs> kid comes home from school and there's a note on the refrigerator. And the note says this. Please put your things away. Have a snack and do the dishes I had to go run some errands. End of note. Please put your things away. Have a snack and do the dishes. I had to go run some errands. See you soon. And the kid says to himself, I don't believe there is such a thing as mom. I don't believe mom exists. I think this note, while interesting, doesn't prove her existence. In fact, if you look closely at the note, it doesn't say it's from mom. In fact, there's really no way to know if this note was the original note. My guess is there was a note that predated this note. And some overzealous scribe has altered the note to fit his own agenda. And probably the original note said, son, come home and play video games. Do whatever you want. Ice cream's in the freezer. Something like that. Okay? Now, this is ridiculous. Why do I say that? Isn't it convenient the kid doesn't believe in mom? And, and maybe, maybe there's not quite enough data for him to be fully convinced there is such a thing as mom. But isn't it interesting that the non-existence of mom also serves to motivate his personal interests? 
If there is no mom, I'm in charge. If there is no mom, therefore I get to do whatever I want. And so faith is just simply this. Acknowledging the world is the way it actually is. The world exists because God has made it. So therefore, God exists and he's totally in charge. And so it's this fact. Faith is just simply recognizing reality for the way it actually is. God's existence does not require your belief. You cannot believe all day long he will not stop existing. He will exist regardless of we buy it or not. And this is how faith and obedience are connected. Obedience of faith is merely a recognition. I believe God exists and he is totally in charge despite the fact that his existence gets in the way of me doing whatever I want. Because if he is totally in charge, what does that mean about me? I'm not. And so this is obedience of faith. So that's first step. Paul is saying he has a ministry of bringing people to the obedience of faith, recognizing reality the way it actually is. God exists and he's in charge. But look at the next thing. He wants to bring people to obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Why did Jesus step in to save humanity? Because he loves us? Yes. Because it's his interest? Yes. Because it's his nature? Yes. But why? For the sake of his reputation. He wants to be known as the saving God, the redeeming God. This isn't the first time in the Bible his name has come up. Look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 11. Exodus chapter 32, verse 11. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he's getting the covenant promises from God. He's been up there for a while. The mountain looks like a volcano. Down in the camp, Israel has decided to make for themselves a god in the form of a cow made of gold, and they are worshiping that uh, idol by having a party. What kind of party? The kind of party where you drink too much and do things you wish you hadn't. And this is their act of worship to this cow which is doing basically whatever they want, right? And while Moses is up on the mountain, this is happening, and God says to Moses, the people of Israel, oh, my lands. I think it was something like that in the Hebrew, oh, my lands. I don't know. And God says, you know what? I'm going to smite them. I'm going to smote them. They will be smitten. I am going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. You seem good. People coming out of you ought to be all right. And what does Moses say? That sounds fantastic. Yeah, you're right. These people are a real pain. No, he doesn't say that. Look at Exodus 32, 11. Moses implored the Lord his God, and he said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Here's Moses' argument. God, if you wipe out Israel, Egypt won't think you're a saving God. What will Egypt think? They're they're not going to believe you're a saving God. They're going to think you're a smiting God. And what is God's response? You're absolutely right. I'm not going to do it. Because it was for his name. And what is his name? The redeeming God who saves his people from Egypt, not because they deserve it, but because that's what God is like. God is saving 
people stepping into humanity for his namesake, that he might be known as God who saves. Good news. God saves humanity. God saves you and he saves me by his grace through faith to give himself glory. I don't want to annoy you any more than I already have. Well, I do actually. Here we go. Your salvation is for you, but your salvation is not about you. As it turns out, and I know this is going to surprise everybody in the room, you are not the center of the universe. And you thought, but he died on the cross because, I mean, look at me. I'm amazing. You don't actually think that out loud. Jesus died on the cross for you. The purpose was all about him. For his name's sake, that he might be discovered to be God who saves. That's what it, it is for his name's sake that we are called to obedience of faith. That when we receive salvation by faith, people look at Jesus and go, he must be a saving God because I know what you're like. And he is glorified in our salvation. But we are not the focus of our redemption. Jesus is. We get saved for his glory, but we derive significant benefit from it. Jesus stepped in to save humanity for his name's sake, that we might be called to obedience of faith and enjoy redemption in him for his glory. Jesus stepped in to save humanity. Okay, let's look at the next one real quick. Jesus stepped in to save humanity, but how? With power. Jesus stepped in with power. Now, in baseball, if you watch Major League Baseball, some people do, um, there's two ways you can score a run. There's lots of ways you can score a run. I'm going to just illuminate you to two ways you can score a run. Say you got guys on base, and another guy gets up to bat, and he will do what's called a sacrifice bunt. So the pitcher throws the ball, pitches the ball, bowls the ball, whatever you call it, and he'll hold his little bat out there, dink it. And his hope is to get it just far enough from the pitcher that it takes him too long to get the ball so a runner can score. There's another way you can score. A guy gets up with biceps the size of my legs. And he has a bat. And it looks like it's being crushed in his grip. And the pitcher pitches it, and he hits the ball down in San Francisco into the bay. That's called the home run. He doesn't even watch it. When he hits it, he knows, bye, see ya. You'll never see that ball again. And he trots around. Okay, which one's more fun? The sacrifice bunt. There's a reason. This is a quote. This isn't in the Bible, just so you know. There's no verse for this. Chicks dig the long ball. Right? I mean, we love the homers. I mean, just crushes it, and he walks it, maybe calls his role. We love the power move. The, and, and what the Bible is telling us is Jesus stepped in with power. Look at verse 4. He was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power. Do you see that? In power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the home run of all home runs. It was the 100-yard reception for the touchdown to win the game. It was the big one. There was nothing better. There was no victory more powerful or more important. This is Jesus stepping in, mic drop, walking off the court saying, try that. Anybody want a piece of this? And what does it say? The devil's just running 
for his life. Jesus stepped in with power. Why did he do that? Another sports reference. I know this is for all the guys today. Sorry, lots of sports references today. Football started, got it on my brain. There was a guy who played college basketball, and maybe you've heard of him. His name was Lou Alcindor. He's, he was okay. Um, you may know him by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, played for the Lakers. I think he, all, he played for Milwaukee, too. Um, when he was in college, playing for UCLA, playing for Wooden, uh, dunking was banned. So you could not score a basket with your hands over the cylinder. You had to be outside the cylinder. And this was called the Lou Alcindor rule. Now, the NC2A said they banned dunking because it was too dangerous. People were twisting their ankles. Right. They banned it because nobody could stop Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This guy could score, and he could, and nobody could stop him, right? So they banned it. Now, if you, I don't know if you know anything about Lou Alcindor's career. How many uh, titles did he win at UCLA? Yeah, all of them. Yeah, he just won. That's what he did. He just won games. But he couldn't dunk, so how did he do it? Well, what he did is he tweaked a shot that existed. There was a shot that existed. It was called uh, the hook shot, the jump hook. He kind of did a little uh, change on it, adjusted his stance, adjusted how he lined up the shot. And the thing with uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he could sink the uh, jump shot or the jump hook much further away from the basket than most people did. And in fact, one UCL bro- UCLA broadcaster rebranded the jump hook the sky hook. Now you remember the sky, because if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is shooting a hook shot, it's a sky hook. He's 37 feet tall. And he's got, and most people believe that the sky hook, when done properly by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, is indefensible. It's not whether or not the defender can stop it, it's just whether or not he's going to make it or not. Because it can't be stopped. So here's what Lou Alcindor did. He said, oh, I can't dunk? Okay, I'll just do a sky hook. You're going to make a rule against sky hooks? What's next? So he just rewrites the rule book in a sense. He said, you can't stop me. And this is what I'm talking about with Jesus. We sin against God, and so death reigns. That's what death has on it. That's what sin has on us. Everybody dies. The mortality rate of planet Earth is 100%. Everybody dies. If you're not dead yet, you will. I mean, and I say that, I don't mean to be depressing. It's, it's the reality. The reason we have to remind ourselves of this is in our culture, we've shoved death off into the far reaches of the corner. As soon as grandma or our friend has cancer in their terminal, we stop seeing them and we just email, how are they doing? And so that we, because we don't want to go see them dying. And memorial services nowadays have changed. It's not very often that there's a casket or even an open casket because we don't want to see death. We want to pretend we somehow... If there's enough medical care, death stops. It hasn't stopped. Everybody dies. And death rules. And that's how sin has its grips on us because everybody dies. And Jesus steps in and says, okay, well, everybody dies. I mean, that's the way it is. But what if you raise from the dead? So, so the rule is if you sin, you die. But what if I made it so you just raised from the dead? I mean, let's just change the rules. Of course you're going to die. Big deal. But what if you're raised? And so he comes in as a human. He dies on the cross having never sinned. So he wasn't required to die. Three days later, he rises from the dead and says, if you're in me, you're raised with me. So now death doesn't matter. He just completely changed the rules. Now death is not a thing. I mean, it's an event. I mean, we all got to do it at some point. But now it doesn't even matter because the rules have changed. And this is described as his power of the resurrection. He has completely written the rule book. Sin and death no longer rule. 
This is the power of his salvation. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is a priest. He is our priest, and this is what the Bible says. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Long story short, Melchizedek was a priesthood that never began and never end. Verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning his bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So Jesus is our priest, not because he's a Levite, not because he's descended from Aaron, not because he's of Israel. He is our priest intervening on our behalf before God because he is indestructible. He is that powerful that he can overcome death. That is how powerful and mighty our Savior is. Jesus' resurrection demonstrate that he is Lord of all. The kids nowadays, when they're talking about athletes, they call him the GOAT. You know what GOAT stands for? Greatest of all time. In a very real sense, that only applies to Jesus. He is the only one who could overcome sin and death. He is the only one who goes into a tomb with an exit strategy. And he walks out greatest of all time. Lifted up and glorified because he is just that powerful. Think about it. There were four centurions outside that grave. Centurions, what are they? They are what we call tough hombres. They kill people on the weekend just to keep their skills sharp. The angel of the Lord, not Jesus, the angel of the Lord says to the centurions, what's up, fellas? And how does the Bible describe them? Unable to move, paralyzed in fear. That's not even Jesus. That's just one of his homies. This is the Savior we serve. That powerful that one of his angels scares centurions to death. Jesus says to death, step aside, bro. I'm here. And he conquers it. He is the greatest of all time because he is God in the flesh that death cannot defeat. Genesis 2, 15, 16, and 17. The Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. And you know what the man said? What was it? I mean, it's just like that. Oh, there's something we can't do? Oh, I'm in. And death rules. Death reigns. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Death has nothing. If you're in Christ, you participate in the resurrection of Christ. In Christ, we anticipate the power of Christ's resurrection forever. And so now we wonder, why did Paul say, I'm his slave? Because that's the best place to be. Because he is a servant of the greatest of all time. The great and mighty and powerful risen Savior. The enemy had a plan. Kill what God had made by getting humankind to disobey him. And God had a better plan. I'll give you resurrection. And Jesus pulled it off. Because he is just that powerful. Jesus stepped in to save humanity. By becoming a human and humbling himself for us. And taking our sin on the cross. And Jesus stepped in to save humanity with power. And he walked out of that grave and said, I don't think so. If you want to walk out of your grave, then you must be with Christ. Just two or three quick things and we'll close with this. Jesus wants to save you. His salvation is personal. His salvation is individual. His salvation is human. He is a man 
who died on the cross, and he knows the situation we've got ourselves in, and he says, I want to save you in particular. He knows what we've done. He knows what we're planning on doing, and he says, I have salvation for you. It's merely a matter of faith. Are we willing to recognize the way things actually are? God created everything and is in charge, and he saw fit to send his Savior to save us. Will we believe it? Because he understands where we're at. Second thing, Jesus is the greatest. There is no power. There is no victory. There is nothing that has ever happened in human history more powerful, more important, or more significant than the resurrection. That was the culminating point of humankind at that moment, and he pulled it off. He is that powerful. The resurrection changed everything about the human experience because we can be in Christ and anticipate a resurrection. What should this move us to do? We should see the power and glory of the resurrection and be moved to worship our King and our Savior and our Master, Jesus Christ. The resurrection is power that should move us to worship and glorify Him who could defeat death. Last thing. Jesus is not desperate. You know what it means to be desperate? No, nobody here, of course. Desperate. What does desperate mean? When a young man or a young woman having a little trouble finding Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Right? We, you know, you'd be there and say, I'm just looking for Mr. and Mrs. Wright. And I can't get there. And pretty soon, maybe a person like me, you know, I'm 75 years old and I haven't gotten married. And, uh, you know, you got a heartbeat? You're breathing? Come on over here. I love you. I mean... I see a connection there. We're both alive. I mean, what more could there be, right? And then we look at Jesus sometimes in the way he's presented, maybe the way we read the scripture, the way we look at it, maybe the way the gospel is sold. And we say, man, this guy must be desperate. Like, does he not have any followers? Jesus isn't desperate. Jesus is the king of the universe. Jesus is God. And he has always been God, and Jesus will always be God. He has seen fit by his humiliation to offer us a means to participate in his resurrection. So here is essentially what he is saying. We can recognize he is God and let him deal with our death. Or we can decide we think we can handle our death all on our own. And because he's not desperate, he will see fit to let us do that. There's two ways our death can be handled. It can be handled by Christ on the cross with the power of the resurrection. Or we can say, I don't think so. I don't buy it. I'll handle my death on my own. And that's a great tragedy because we can't handle our own death. Jesus wants to save you. And he's calling us to put our faith in him that he can handle our death.